You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 498, not like other mums, Celeste Bell on polystyrene, rock group managers Alan McGee, drugs and oasis, and living in a pay-per-click world. That's all coming up after Fountains of Wayne and Hey Julie. Working all day for a mean little man With a clip on tight and a rub on tan He's got me running around the office like a dog around a track But when I get back home you're always there to rub my back Hey Julie, look what they're doing to me Trying to trip me up, trying to wear me down Julie, I swear it's so hard to bear it And I'd never make it through without you around No, I'd never make it through without you around Hours on the phone making pointless calls I've got a desk full of paper that means nothing at all Sometimes I catch myself staring into space Counting down the hours till I get to see your face Hey Julie, look what they're doing to me Trying to trip me up, trying to wear me down Julie, I swear it's so hard to bear it And I'd never make it through without you around No, I'd never make it through without you around How did it come to be that you and I must be Far away from each other every day Why must I spend my time Filling up my mind With facts and figures that Never add up anyway They never add up anyway He's got me running around the office like a turtle on a wheel He can tell me what to do, but he can't tell me what to feel Hey Julie, look what they're doing to me Trying to trip me up, trying to wear me down Julie, I swear it's so hard to bear it And I'd never make it through without you around No, I'd never make it through without you around No, I'd never make it through without you around Their previous album had poor reviews and they were dropped by their record company and Nadir in Fortunes in a four-year hiatus. But Mm. they bounced back with this wonderfully quirky album of power pop, I suppose one would say, from 2003 and the album Welcome Interstate Managers, Fountains of Wayne and Hey Julie. That is a good choice. I do like Fountains of Wayne. Mm. Their irrepressible sunny pop could not be held down for long. Exactly so. Hello, thanks for joining us at the Parish Council. It's episode mm. 498. I'm Terence Stackham, and never mind all this Hey Julie, it's time to say Hey Juliet. Ah, oh, very good. I knew you'd have some. Oh, I need to have some. There is someone who works for the same people as I do that has a name that is only one letter different to my name. And uh, what can I say? I get a lot of emails at work and occasionally some of them for me. Um, <laughs> the rest are for this colleague of mine and indeed vice versa. So I am used to having my name mangled, shall we say, at the moment. So it comes as no surprise to me, Sir Terence. Hello, everyone. Now, there was a movie release this week on Sky oh. Arts because they part funded it. And um, I declare a bit of an interest. The last time I talked to Celeste Bell 
um, we were outside the Half Moon in Putney at one of the Polyfest gigs, mm. um, raising money for the Teenage Cancer Trust. And I reminded her, she couldn't remember this, of how I had pushed her around Kensington Gardens when she was a toddler of about two. <laughs> Not surprising she couldn't quite remember that. I knew her mother Polystyrene because I'd booked them out at gigs in the uh, late 70s. And, and later I had a hand in bringing together the musicians for Polly's first solo album in 1980. Mm. And... Um, I remember Polly Styrene, who I, I knew as Marie, as a quiet, shy and sort of smart woman, I suppose. But she yes. was terribly gullible and seemed forever to be surrounded by men who mm. seemed to want to tell her what to do. This movie, Polly Styrene, um, I Am a Cliché. It was inspired by and is narrated in the main by her daughter, Celeste. Mm. And it's such an intimate insight into Polly's life and her very troubled relationship with Celeste that, um, that Jules, I wondered if it should actually have been made at all. Well, I thought it was. Well, firstly, I, I have to declare a slight interest in that. I think it was Polly Styrene's mother. Um, so Polly Styrene spent the last few years of her life in Hastings. It mm. was very nice. I, I live in Hastings. St. Leonard's. It was very nice to see all the wonderful shots of Hastings. Of course, it was seeing the Sex Pistols on Hastings Pier that had inspired Polly Styrene to kind of enter the enter the world of music. And uh, Joan Elliott, I believe, lived on the same road as me. Yeah. for a few years really? and and interestingly um i used to i was in charge of delivering uh, leaflets labor leaflets for that part of the world at that time in my life we and, assumed uh, it wasn't conservative leaflets <laughs> and um indeed yes that that well it was, actually it was monster raving loony but anyway <laughs> we'll say it was labor and i was i was delivering them round and um there were several blocks of flats in the square where I lived where it wasn't easy to get in. There was no trade bell. And the uh, local council of whom I was delivering had numbers of you know, just generally friendly people who he knew who he, who would let you in. And Joan Elliott was one of the numbers that I occasionally <laughs> used to buzz. I think it was her. And and uh, this chap had said to me, who sadly no longer with us as well, had said, oh, her daughter's in some pop group. You'll know them X-ray specs. <laughs> and so, so, yes, I used to be... I used to be occasionally I would exchange pleasantries on the intercom then I'd be allowed in to, to <laughs> post things through doors so that's my slightly bizarre encounter and and of course I I don't think I ever met Marianne actually but I, I knew people that knew her I borrowed a synth that turned out to belong to her that she'd lent to someone else for a while I think so she was very much a sort of Hastings person mm. I very much enjoyed watching this film I enjoyed the fact I, I, like you say, it was a very revealing portrait. It was interesting in that it did cover her whole life. So obviously the first sort of hour or so was a sort of look at her kind of musical career. And that was incredibly inspiring, you know, to see. She really did have a sort of a, but she just cut through everything, didn't she? She had a voice that just mm. cut through everything with clarity. And I really enjoyed they had loads of great talking heads, didn't they? That loads of people from that scene kind of popped up. It was really interesting to hear from people from the raincoats and Helen McCookery book and people like that. I thought it was great celebration of her talents. And then, of course, towards the end of the film, it became more serious mm. and sort of deeper. But I was comforted by the fact that lots of people seemed to contribute. So it, it seemed, so you had Adrian Bell, you had uh, her sister was, was contributing throughout. You had, I, I, I felt, I didn't really feel it was one of those cut and paste type jobs. I felt it was a, it was a very personal tribute by Celeste. And actually I, I thought I, 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 I was very moved by Celeste telling her story and telling their story. And actually by, by telling the story of her mother's whole life, 
I thought it was a good portrait of who, who her mother was. I, I admire the fact that Celeste is in charge of the um, of the archive. And, and I think that Polly Stone has been an incredibly undersung figure. She did a lot. She was a very talented woman. And I thought that was a she was not an uncomplicated woman. And actually, I thought it was it, it, it meant much more, I think, to present a full portrait than, you know, airbrushing stuff out because that would have just been weird I thought it was and I was very moved by the end sections and you know her and her daughter having had her and Celeste having written the last album together and and you know the footage the way that they filmed the, the sort of appearing to come on stage at the roundhouse I thought was great so so I, I I thought it was a very moving film but then I find everything moving at the moment Terrence I cry at the drop of a hat but I yeah. thought it was a I thought it was a I thought it was a it was a superb film I thought it was a very honest film. I didn't think it was insensitive particularly. It was Celeste's story, and I. I but but at the same time, I thought it really did sort of show the magnificent woman that Polly Styron was, and I, I I enjoyed seeing it. And actually, it's interesting that you say that it's um that it was part funded by Sky. It was originally crowdfunded because I think mm. I spotted a couple of our listeners' names in the in the crowdfunded uh, list. I won't embarrass them, but I spotted some familiar names at the end. And mm. I remember them trying to crowdfund for it at the time. And I was I couldn't remember if I donated or not, but I didn't see my name. So obviously I didn't. Sorry about that. But I'm glad it got made anyway. It's interesting that apparently a lot of these, there's loads of these type films that are on, on Sky Arts at the moment. And it's disappointing. And I think this, this harks back to previous discussions we've had about the BBC that apparently a lot of this stuff is being turned down by by the BBC Four who don't want to take a risk on it and it's a shame because I you know I, I felt I felt enlightened for having watched it. I found it moving too but I also found it rather distressing as I think I've mm. kind of alluded to a, a minute ago and Celeste says that uh, polystyrene was I quote not like other mums and that the mm-hmm. description and portrayals of, of, of on TV uh, or in the music press yes. were and again a quote so far removed from the mother I knew mm. and I know from personally witnessing how Celeste was when she was two or three that mm. she was certainly neglected yes. um, and um I think Polly was so distracted by her mental health issues. Yes. And I, I think, think most... that's, that's the big, that's the big story, I think. Really. Well, also the, the drugs that, um, that she took mm. that did so much to damage her. And yes. I think, you know, you can blame the people who gave them to her. I think the first time was in New York, but yes, you know, that's, you, that's the, nobody the shoves the them down told. your throat. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But it was... I suppose, I suppose drugs didn't so much change her, but they made her, made her existing issues so much worse well, and, they stripped everything away, didn't they? Yeah, I suppose, they did. And I, think I think it's completely wrong as well. That's something that came to me watching this film and bringing back memories. Completely wrong that women were empowered in the punk era. Most times mm. they were treated appallingly, both as fans and as fellow mm. musicians. And a hint of that is in the film when Polly uh, visits Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious. Yes. At that, uh, house oh, that was, they did not come well out of that, did they, no, really? That no. was pushed forward. It, it, but do you know what? It wasn't just men. Now, this... This wasn't in the film. There was a tiny clip of this in the film, but the full thing wasn't there. But the bit mm. I'm just going to talk about is on YouTube. The clip is on YouTube. I'm I'm haunted by this. It's a visit Polly made in 1978, I think, to the EMI pressing plant in Hayes. Mm. She's a VIP and she's given a tour and, yeah. and she meets this woman packing X-ray specs records. And the first thing this woman says to her is, hello, are your teeth genuine? And oh, gosh, she yes. Says, on telly, you look as if you've got steel teeth. And it, it was shown on a BBC Arena film maybe mm. 10 years ago. I've never forgotten the rudeness. And that's mm. how she was often treated as a sort yes. of specimen to be kind of looked at and pointed at. 
And I think and that is that clip is on YouTube, by the way, if you mm. want to see it. I think polystyrene was completely different to the woman on stage. Oh, yes. But what struck me was for a while she became the woman on stage yes. and found herself deeply uncomfortable with that and so well, she got caught up i think in, in in a lot of things and again i thought that i thought the film was was pretty good at telling that story i think i i, I felt the film was warts and all which like you say made it upsetting to watch mm. but it, it it had integrity i think for telling the story it wasn't one of these um airbrushed biopics although like you say that clip didn't appear in it but um but it does it did do a good job of presenting you know what a pioneer polystyrene was and i was glad that that was that really did come across in the film yes i I think um the final thought on that sort of issue is that that was in the film the hurry krishna area she was Mm. seeking peace in these spiritual areas and i didn't think that helped her at all you know a very troubled life no it um, was having said that though there's some marvellous footage in the film oh it's a, yeah, it's a film worth watching right yeah mm. absolutely mm. um polystyrene i'm a cliche it's available on sky arts with um with proposed other releases later in the year mm-hmm. coming up next how to be a rock manager it's mm. easy <laughs> is that, it <laughs> that's right after x-ray specs
to the fact that there was a, a sort of a local connection to this. Um, I, th- I thought we ought to hear from, we ought to hear X-ray specs at yeah. their best, I think, really. And um, so I remember, I remember um, polystyrene passing away. Um, she passed away on the 25th of April, 2011. And I, I, like I said, I didn't really know her, but but lots of people I, I knew that lived in St. Ellis did. And at the end of that year, I went to a New Year's Eve party peculiarly one of the best halls locally is the masonic hall in st leonard's but anyway i i my family have quote unquote issues with the masons but i swallowed them and went to a party you know like all, all good people in their 20s do and uh and there was lots of gossip as to what the song the first song would be after the chimes of new year and it was proper old school there was a net with balloons in it suspended <laughs> from the ceiling that they released at the end and as they released it as the chimes went off someone had the good sense to put on germ-free adolescent <laughs> <laughs> to see us into 20, what, 20, 2011 2012 as a tribute to Polystar and I thought that was incredibly moving and lovely that everyone sort of sang along and that was a, a nice moment so I thought I'd pick that germ-free adolescence by x-ray specs it's worth remembering that in the late 70s in the UK unbelievable as it seems now there were only three television channels and so it felt like the whole country watched Top of the Pops on BBC yeah. One and I think Polly's stunning visuals on TV mm. contributed considerably to that yeah. little run of success they had with the the, the three chart bound singles absolutely five singles at an album i mean it's it's mm. uh yeah it was it was it was you know and also the blast of the saxophone as well it yeah. it, I, it it said good things about laura logic i thought that she managed to forgive yes. you know yes. being sacked and having all of her saxophone arrangements played by someone else and yet she and she and uh she and uh, polly were reconciled in later life so but yeah i think that's a that's a stunning record there's something that's so I mean, there's slightly discordant saxophone across it. It's 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 a it's a great record. I think it's a it's a genuinely brilliant pop single. Um, that was in the 1970s, of course. When I first started working in the music mm. business in the mid 70s, m- most of the managers of bands and the managers of record labels and the controllers of BBC Radio One were nearly always former military men, um, several of whom had fought in the Second World War. Um, it's so extraordinary old-fashioned and as a very junior bloke first at Pi and then at Charisma Records but also as someone with way too much I guess youthful confidence I was often sent to meetings that the more senior record people couldn't be bothered to attend or felt so out of touch I mean at Pi I was the youngest member of staff in the in the sort of management team by about 20 to 30 years um and this was an age of no internet no mobile phone so i was also a handy sort of messenger uh person mm. walking through soho delivering urgent contracts or vital checks that they didn't want to put in the mail uh, whatever to these old school managers and one i remember particularly who had a, a lovely office in mayfair was a bloke called bunny lewis which is a great mm. name isn't it? yes bunny i've lewis. heard this name before yeah and I had to uh, deliver a contract there, I think. And he was such a lovely old gent in his massive suits and wide ties. And he was very kind to me. Took me to lunch at the Café Ro- uh, Royale. And uh, despite the age difference and coming from different eras, we, we stayed in touch. And I had lunch with him several times, even as the years went on. And I moved on to other things right up until shortly before he died in 2001. So these were the music managers, Epstein, um, Bunny Lewis, Billy Gaff, with their short hair, suits and ties. Quite the contrast to the rock music managers of your era, I guess, Jules. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a... 
I mean, having said that, it's it's almost impossible. There are different ways that you pass that you can find your way through being a rock manager, I think. What, who do you want? Do you want someone that's entertaining or do you want someone that's going to look after you properly? Um, because, of course, uh, Alan McGee, the infamous manager of, uh, well, he, I'm not sure if he, he wasn't really Oasis' manager, but he managed the record label upon which Oasis and various other bands uh, band sort of uh, sort of mm. exploded um, a creation. He had a sort of a. I think this is part of the problem. Really, he had this kind of blurred role, and that they're actually managed by Ignition, which was run by Marcus Russell. But there was some sort of Alan McGee had some sort of stake in it. I think so. His role, I think, was difficult in that he was he seemed to switch between having a management type role with Oasis, but also being in charge of their record label. And actually, sometimes the interest of the person running the record label and the interest of someone managing the band they're not always the same thing are they really no. and plus not helped by the fact that Anna McGee took a truckload of drugs and eventually had some sort of psychotic breakdown which is perhaps not helpful from any any sort of point of view um Rob Gretton is always cited as a big kind of uh, important manager in that he um it was it was him that got them onto uh, got um Joy Division onto Tony Wilson's uh, factory records and it was him that kind of of um, uh, sort of did did a lot of their visuals. Now here's the thing: he he took a, an opposite view. If you were a manager of a band, you'd want you'd want as much exposure for them as possible. You would think that would be the logic. He decided he would stop the band from ruining the music by giving interviews and keeping them based in the northwest of England. Um, he and continued to to be sort of manager of New Order after uh, after after Ian Curtis passed away and Joy Division moved into that. I think my favourite manager's story and it's not not so much the matter or rather what what to do when you're trying to manage a band and you're getting you're getting unnecessary input from somebody else um the uh, british sea power a band that you might be familiar with mm. they're a, a sort of a, an indie band um that come from well my part of the world actually southeast england and uh they they were they haven't been managed for some time but they were initially um managed by their brother so his brothers roy Wilkinson's brothers formed the british sea power and decided their brother would be in charge of managing them <laughs> their biggest fan was their dad and actually, oh. quite often, Roy Wilkinson had some difficulty in managing them because their father, who was, I think, in his 80s by this point, was was often ringing up with helpful advice for the manager. <laughs> so um, and Roy Wilkinson wrote a book, which is brilliant, about that time that's called Do It For Your Mama. And, uh, and the reason it's called that is, is that apparently on one occasion, standing in Roy Wilkinson's sitting room, tears in his eyes, the dad says... Do it for your mum. Do oh. it for the butthole surfers. Because it turns out the dad read any book he could. He used to ring up the manager and play um, his son and play uh, Nirvana down the phone and shout, listen to those drums at him in an attempt <laughs> to kind of influence. Um, he it was also um, my favourite story. It says on an early tour, the band's bus stopped off at our family home. Matter of factly, dad told us he'd been in touch with you too, asking for some support slots. I got an address from the library, he explained. 
mind. You two are charlatans. Everyone knows that, but it will be good exposure for you. So perhaps it's not always very easy to manage a band if other people are trying to get involved, particularly if the band are your family and the number one fan is your dad. That is a very uh, unusual unusual experience, I think. Um, Brian Epstein by the Beatles is always is always it's interesting isn't it is is what happens when your usp becomes your biggest failing he was meant to be in charge of the money brian epstein wasn't he he was meant to be in Mm. charge of in charge of their interest and yet was blamed for selling their rights away very cheaply as a result which they didn't make anywhere near the money they could have done having said that would they have got to that position in the first place without him probably not one thing so so there are there are interesting you know there are there are different methods of managing i think the best managers are the managers that don't make it about themselves i would probably take um peter grants over i think alan mcgee's and malcolm mclaren's because they um because he um he managed to make bands very rich just by working in their best interest without necessarily trying to be a star or a personality in his own right that's where i think managers go wrong when they try and style themselves as svengalis and forget what actually what they're meant to be doing which is their job looking after bands and helping bands to be successful that's a very interesting point. That's just reminded me of a uh, an, an, another uh, sort of Svengali type manager. I'll mm. maybe talk about that in a minute. I'm talking about the old mili- ex-military men, always always, mm. always men, of course. Always yes, men. Yes, quite. Or Colonel Tom Harker, of course. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> well, yes. Um, well, perhaps the self-style Colonel I was going to say. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> not actually a military person. Yes, no, I he know, was an illegal immigrant into uh, America, <laughs> yes, not quite. a Colonel at all. No, the, the 1970s, though, they did see the beginning of change. When I was at Charisma, my mentor was the amazing um, Tony Stratton-Smith, who mm. started the label, owned the label. And although he wore a suit and tie, he had really long hair, and he was only just into his 40s. And I was so lucky to know him. And, and there were afternoons, when it, a sunny afternoon in the summer, when he'd often say, oh, let's skip this. And we, we, he would take me off to the horse wow. racing at Sandown. Oh, or wow. Camp- <laughs> That's amazing. Because he he had Genesis, Bonzo Dog, Doodah Band, Monty Python, Lindisfarne, so a very varied mix. No, you just reminded me, Sven Gali. I mean, perhaps in retrospect, my strangest, most surreal times with 1970s rock managers when I was at Pi, and we were trying to attract. Uh, trying to attract some songwriters for our label mm. acts, and uh, one one um, one such was a duo, as a pairing of David Courtney and Gerard Sayer. And Gerard right. Sayer, a year or two later, was to change his name to Leo Sayer, and obviously oh, have success yeah. as a singer himself. But anyway, at this time they were managed by Adam Faith, and mm. um, talking about Svengali's and their sort of behaviour. Um, Adam Faith, he didn't bother having an office in London at all, but he took up residence every day at a corner table in the Fountain Restaurant in Fortnum and Mason. Oh, how interesting. Unbelievably, Mm. in retrospect, they allowed him to sit all day drinking (laughs) coffee, holding meetings and using their phone, Mike, Mark, you. (laughs) I love going to these meetings. Again, I was sent to these meetings because nobody else wanted to go. And (laughs) I was only 19 or 20. And we would spend five minutes talking about songwriting and then maybe two hours talking about football and i used to sit there sometimes and think i'm talking about peter osgood and jeff hurst with adam faith Faith. (laughs) i I doubt though if we'd find 
um, I don't think we'd find today's rock music managers holding holding meetings in Fortnum and Mason. Well, in, no, in, although having said that, have uh, well, this is before their recent downfall. But uh, I, some years ago in my professional life, um, was involved in in representing one of the people that managed Kasabian. Oh, and uh, what can I say? They made a lot of money. The 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 sort of properties I was sourcing for for this individual, they weren't my two bedroom flat in St Edward's. Put it that way. So so I think that there is a lot of money to be made still, if you are if you have a hard head. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, coming right up, paying journalists and maybe you, uh, based on popularity. That's oh. next. I, I feel I'm sad already, Terence. Play me a nice record to cheer me up. I'll do that. It's after Semisonic with Carol King. All above me, the stars are bright, and the sweet suburban breeze is blowing. And down the block are the parking lights of a hundred friends who I barely.
such a lovely track, co-written by the bands Dan Wilson and Carol King. Uh, this is a track from the 2001 album All About Chemistry. It's semisonic with guest vocals from Carol King, One True Love. That's nice to hear that. And actually, I'd, I'd never been that familiar with semisonic, but uh, anything with Carol King on is never going to be bad, is it? Exactly so. Um when I was a young lad at college, one summer holiday in, in order to be with my mates, I went to work at the R. White's Lemonade Factory at Sunbury on Thames. Mm. I mentioned this before, but in this context, um, by the way, it's probably the most boring weeks of my life. <laughs> we, we stood at the end of a production line picking off bottles of lemonade and cream soda mm. and putting them in crates ready to be driven away by R. White's vast number of delivery lorries. But we students were very unpopular with the regular workers because they mm. were paid according to the number of bottles produced and shipped out. And of course, us dilettantes studying art and philosophy mm. were hopelessly slow and not a little idle. And I was reminded of this um, this so-called uh, peace rate or piecemeal pay model this week, Jules, when we learned that the Daily Telegraph is planning its journalists uh, in, in the to pay them pay the journalists in the same manner as me on that bottled conveyor belt at R. White's when I was 16 years old yes quite well it's interesting this well firstly I'm sorry for your last working working <laughs> on that although perhaps I mean so there are there are differing arguments for this um so so you could one argument for paying people piecemeal is that it, it motivates and encourages people to work more quickly and, and be more productive that is one way of looking at it of course perhaps from a from an editorial perspective we're looking at a newspaper thing here um Perhaps I mean, well, I think this is worth uh, worth um, reading this out. The Daily Telegraph wants to link some elements of journalist pay to, so not all of it, but some elements to the popularity of their articles. An email seen by the Guardian reveals, in a plan set of alarmed and dismayed staff who fear it will seriously warp our editorial priorities. An email sent by the editor, Chris Evans, that always makes me laugh. Last <laughs> Thursday, I know there's more than one. Told yeah. staff that in due course, the outlet wants to use the Stars system, which scores stories published online according to factors such as how many subscriptions they drive and how many clicks they get to link performance to reward using subscription data although having said this there's concerns mm-hmm. um uh, that it's not it's uh it's um, not gonna it might not produce work that it is of good quality i'm always reminded one of my favorite ever kind of quotes is the famous story that martin scorsese the director used to have a sign on his trailer when on film sets saying good quick cheap pick two being being the idea that you cannot have something that is good quality quick and cheap you know you're always you're going to be compromising on one of those things um one veteran staffer um told colleagues no one likes seeing how the sausage gets made especially when they turn out to be the sausages and uh, which is a great (laughs) quote taken from a whatsapp group that's not a quote that someone maybe it is a quote that someone meant to be i don't think anybody says that and doesn't expect it to go elsewhere but anyway it's 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 a, it's a worry i think because of course we we talk about i think we in the times that we live in to have integral journalism with with sincerity to it that you can rely upon to tell truths 
is more important than ever, I think. And I, I hate the idea. And we I think we've spoken before about clickbait and how damaging it is and how much clickbait. You see it all the time, almost like kind of chip paper. It's the Internet's chip paper clickbait, I think. And it's stuff that is just just it, it's often untrue. It often results in hysterical headlines where you mm. click. And because I'm not above clicking on clickbait, that's the whole point of it, that it reels you in. It is, oh, my goodness. Is, you know, is Florida really going to be underwater in 30 <laughs> seconds time? And then, of course, it, it isn't going to be underwater in 30 seconds time. That is a very, very high reading of the research that is being referred to in the article or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And so I do, I worry for things like that. I can see some circumstances in which paying people for productivity has upsides. Although, of course, the downsides that come with that is, you know, being the boring old person that I am, how do you keep people safe? How do you make those working conditions safe? And how do you make the the end product good or integral if it's newspaper? If it's newspaper how could you, how is that end product reliable? If you are just paying people to to kick out as much content or as much output or or as much product as they can is uh, who does that really serve it probably serves the uh, the the uh, you know the argument is is it will serve the people who are who are you know who are producing more probably not because i suspect that the piecemeal rate will be adjusted downwards accordingly that you know if you're running a business but these people that are running businesses on this model they're not going to let it cost them more money are they I'm, no. i'd be very surprised if they were so so you so all it's going to serve is the interest of the people who pro, who profit from the products it's not going to it's not going to benefit I don't think the people that are producing it and it's not going to benefit the people consuming it I suppose the full rights and wrongs of this will be in the detail if, mm. if media outlets pay journalists just simply pay journalists by the number of online clicks then everyone from Sarah Vine to um, yes. Marina Hyde will be demanding they write only about Meghan and Harry or or Drake and Ariana Grande. I mean, this sort of, this sort of thing actually it, it goes on though in similar spheres because for example mm. Although the headline figures in radio are all about rage R listing figures, what bosses really focus on is the AAI, the Audience Appreciation yeah. Index. And that's important in commercial radio because the more you appreciate or enjoy a show, the closer you'll listen and the mm. more attention you'll pay to the commercials, which is where the profits are made. But um, yeah, so in a sense, it's already in co- paying people by results is already in common practice. Footballers get additional bonuses for winning games. Yes, true. The more records of Dell or Ed Sheeran sell, the more money they make. Most companies have an element of performance pay in their arrangements with employees. So is it really so bad to expect journalists to write pieces people want to read? Well, I suppose so. But but are those pieces that pe- do people want to read stuff that is accurate? I suppose that's that's the point that I'm making. I do worry that it's this kind of slightly hysterical race to the bottom that is warping what we really need to know. Yeah, I'd, I think having played devil's advocate and put forward the uh, case here, I think um, I'm probably against this really, because, of course, the counter argument to all this is that it could lead. Um, in terms of journalism to a lack of seeking the truth and spending... well this is it this is my exact point is this is this is producing stuff in a very broad brush a quick you know quick fire alarmist way to make things seem as hysterical as possible to draw people's interest in rather than necessarily setting out what the reality is and then yeah and and instead of spending time uncovering important mm. stories 
um, be, because if paying <laughs> yes. your rent depends on clicks, you're going to write about Meghan Markle and ignore some great political scandal that oh, exactly, needs weeks yeah. of background research. So pretty much a boo, I think, to journalism yes. that pays I, by clicks. I think it's and, and actually for most things that for anything that really matters or counts, mm. I think performance related pay can only result in disaster. Thank you very much for listening this week. It's been lovely to have you along. I, 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 what can I say? My name is Juliet Harris and I endorse this message. Will you be charming us with your smooth sailing antics this week? Well, yes, I will. I'll hopefully be back on Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Mixler.com forward slash Juliet hyphen Harris. We'll just search for my name on there. Two hours of very soothing yet uplifting yacht rock, um, classic pop, M.O.R., easy listening, all of that sort of thing. Lovely. And to play us out, a song previously covered by the Beach Boys, Frank Zappa and Motorhead. What can I say? All human life is here, Terence, yeah. as always. Um, <laughs> well, but I've continued because it's pleasing you so much. I've continued with these reggae covers, which, are, which you know, are, are, are very nice, aren't they? I mean, I'm enjoying their cheeriness. I'm particularly enjoying this one because, of course, the the original lyric to this tune was famously so filthy that that was why it's the 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 vocals on the Kingsman seminal version is uh, is is semi audible at best, isn't it? Really. So I I feel that the the words have been a little bit cleaned up here. I think to suit toots and the maytals rather more sunny world view i think i love this it's the sound of it's the sound of happiness and we could all do with a bit of that at the moment so this is the excellent toots and the maytals and doing their version of louis louis
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs>